Previously on The Tony Kornheiser Show. There are several great things about this story, and I have been following it very, very closely. One is brought Carol Baskin back into our life, right? She started, we all started the pandemic with her. So it is spectacular that she's back in the news. Two, the fact that this guy is wanted for murder is secondary to the whole story. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, this guy wandering around town wanted for murder. And Nigel, he evidently keeps several exotic animals, including two monkeys, one of whom he took with him to the dentist. I think that's important. Why is he allowed free on the street? The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. All righty then, we are going to do um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday podcast this week because I have Thursday and Friday off because the PGA tournament uh, is going to be on ESPN. So Championship. PGA Championship. Same difference. Yes, yes. Uh, so I will do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I had a very busy week with doctors last week, a radiologist, a dermatologist, uh, and a cardiologist. I'm done with gists. And I said to the last doctor, next time I'm going to a veterinarian. I just don't, I don't want to do this anymore. How was the stress test? I didn't take the stress test. I have to take it in November. I don't really understand that. I, I was ready to take it. Well, it's it. not like that's going to weigh in your mind for the I next had, few months. <laughs> I had sneakers on and everything. I was ready to go. In terms of other medical news, Nigel is under the weather. Nigel, you took your second um, coronavirus shot, and you're not good now, right? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't feel well at all. But um, but you you guys have all said that in like twelve hours, this just passes through like a quick storm front, right? You'll be fine by tomorrow, but you're not fine now. I think t- tonight you'll be fine, but I, yeah. I still want to see the vaccine passport. Yeah, I want to make sure you actually got it and you're not lying. Uh, for people who care about the Washington Nationals, I'll be very brief. Brad Hand passed the test yesterday. Uh, Brad Hand came in in a three nothing game in the ninth inning. He got a dubious checked swing third strike i didn't think it was legit but then he got a pop out to the shortstop and then he got a swinging third strike had he failed had he failed for the fourth time in a row i would have suggested just just releasing him because he stunk and it was no good but he got back in my good graces however briefly how about eric fetty eric fetty pitched great seven scoreless eric fetty because chuck todd and i were going back and forth and it was right before the fifth inning and i said this is his waterloo inning all the time he has some strong starts, and then in the fifth, something terrible happens. But he pitched actually from the three, four, five, six, seven. He pitched better than he pitched in one and two. He pitched right. He pitched yeah, well. Yeah, you know, this could be one of those silver linings of the last year and a half without having a healthy Strasburg, or if we will have a healthy Strasburg, to see Eric Fetty actually develop. Yeah. The best is when he comes. He goes, oh, if they wanted me to come in for the eighth, I was ready. Oh, no, no, Fetty, you've done enough. Today. Yeah, you did. You did great. Um, the Wizards have finished eighth. Uh, that's that's a big move by them. And they started out, they were terrible this season when they started. They didn't adjust. Westbrook and Beal had nothing going on early. Not that they weren't fine players, but they weren't winning games. I think there's something like 16-6 and six in their last 22 games. I and mean, they're a hot team. They're going to play Boston in the first play-in game. They finished eighth. Boston finished seventh. Boston is gassed. They're done. The Wizards are going to win that game, and they're going to be the seventh seed. I guess that gets them Brooklyn, so I don't know that that's something you aspire to. But okay, but they're, I think they're going to make the playoffs, the actual playoffs, and I think good for them. I don't know if it'll save Scott Brooks's job, but Westbrook and Beal have been very good together. I wanted to also... No caps? I don't know much about the, ca- the caps, but I did read a story where both of their goaltenders are out with COVID protocols. Can that be true? Interesting. 
you know, one of them got it and the other one was nearby and something like that. This late in the season, I, I hope I'm it right about odd that. that it would stop just at the goalie core, but well, I well, I don't know. I mean, the goalies are separate from the other members of the team. I don't even know if I'm correct. I mean, I may be misinterpreting all of this. We will have Pat Forty on the show to talk about the Preakness. We will have Michael Wilbon on the show to talk about being in the Hall of Fame. I did want to say to Jason Bailey, who wrote this lovely tribute to his dad, um, it's really nice. You can be proud of him, and he can be proud of you. It's really nice. Now I want to get to something else, and this is personal. Not me personal, but personal in the sense that, that this is about something that matters to me much more than it matters probably to most of the people who listen to this show because they're unaware of it. Uh, Joe Valerio died over the weekend at 71 years old of pancreatic cancer, which is terribly, terribly destructive and fatal on just an enormous percentage of the time. Joe Valerio was the producer of the Sports Reporters. He was the third producer of the Sports Reporters, and he was the producer of record for over 20 years. And the Sports Reporters, the Sunday morning show that started out in the mid-'80s uh, and went through about five years ago, went about over 30 years or something like that, was the pioneering sports talk show on television. I'll give you a little bit of history here. The show, The origin of this type of show actually happened in Chicago with the Chicago Sports Writers Show. There were four guys sitting around smoking cigars, and they talked about Chicago sports, and nobody had ever done anything like this before. And it had a small national following, but it was mostly a local show. And, um, and that was the Alpha. Okay, that's the first one that ever happened. But as a result of that, a variety of shows came upon the marketplace and the most successful show was sports reporters which was on on sunday 10 in the morning i think on sundays on espn on a regular basis the first host um the show was created by terry o'neill who at one point was the head of sports productions in abc nbc and cbs he went for the trifecta terry had them all and terry sold the show to espn the original pilot for the show had uh, Will McDonough of the Boston Globe, Dave Anderson of the New York Times, Mike Lupica of the New York News, and Anthony Irwin Kornheiser of the Washington Post. The show was sold on the basis of that, and Terry did it for about a year, and his host, his original host, was Gary Thorne. Gary Thorne, uh, for many, many years, was the play-by-play -play voice of the New York Islanders and was the play-by-play -play voice, and I think still is, of the Baltimore Orioles. I think still is, I'm not certain of that, Gary Thorne. That lasted for about a year, and then Terry got a job as the head of CBS or NBC or whichever one it was, and he left ESPN to take that job. Of course he would, that made all the sense in the world. The next group of people who took it over was uh, a, a man who was a local sports producer in New York City named Carmine Sincata. And he brought with him Chet Forty, who was a Emmy-winning director, 20 Emmys, and the original director of Monday Night Football. All right, it, just, it just does not get any better than that. And they brought in Dick Schapp, and Schapp became the host at that point. They were only involved for about six months. I don't know what happened, but after that, ESPN turned to Joe Valerio, and they said, would you like to take this over? 
And that was interesting to me because when I started at Newsday in the 19, early 1970s, Joe Valerio started at the, at the New York Post in the early 1970s. Dave Hershey started at the New York News in the early 1970s. And we were all pals and we were sports writers. And I don't know how Joe made the transition to television, but he did. And in the mid to late 80s, he took over sports reporters. And first and foremost with Dick Schapp as the host. And then with, after Dick died, uh, John Saunders as the host. That became appointment viewing for sports fans all around the country. The ratings on that show, the, the raw ratings aren't going to mean much, but they dominated the time period, and people watched the show. And that show, um, which you had to report, about 7 o'clock in the morning, you had to get to the studio. You always came up the day before, the night before, if you were on the show, and you slept over, and then got to the studio at 7 in the morning where Miriam applied makeup. And at that point, there were three guests. It started out when Terry O'Neill started it, there were four guests. And Terry brought people in from all over the country. Terry spent a lot of money. He'd bring people in from Los Angeles, and he'd bring people in from St. Louis, and he'd bring people in from Minneapolis and Chicago. And when, you know, by the early 90s, it was just about all the time East Coast people. I mean, that's pretty much what it was, most of the time, if not all the time, East Coast people. Joe got there at about 5 in the morning with Robbie Cowan, who was the director, who got there about 5.30, and Robbie brought Dick to the show to make sure that Dick got there on time. Uh, and the rest of us just sort of wandered in. And the people who did that show to begin with, and Joe was always, it was so odd, in, in winter and in summer, Joe always had a scarf. Always had a scarf around his neck. Never fastened, always around his neck. Always had a, uh, a cup of uh, styrofoam cup of coffee in his hand and was always happy and energetic and talked you through all the stories that they were going to do. Earlier in the week, by Thursday or so, you know, you had a sense of what the show was going to be about and you had to write that thing called a parting shot and you did that on your own and you recorded that through a prompter. Um, but you you know, you, you talked over the stories. Joe was great at figuring out the stories. They weren't just East Coast stories, even though they were mostly East Coast people. The people who went on that show, um, and I will say this, that I was much younger then. You know, I'm old now. But it was a great measure of pride for me to be asked to be on that show. It's not that I wanted a career in television at all. Not, not at all. But it was nice. The fame of it was nice and the acceptance of it was nice it set you apart from other sports writers because the only show out there like this this is before espn had 97 shows with sports writers including the pti show but in that period of time it was you know uh, to me and i don't know how it was for the others but it was a feather in the cap and i was very proud when i was asked to do it and after the recording um i would either go to LaGuardia to fly home, as much as I hated flying, if there was somebody else like Ralph Wiley going to Washington, D.C., I would go with him and get on the plane. Or if not, I would take the train home. I would take the Amtrak home. I always call my dad. I would tell him what the show was about. And I'd tell him if I thought I did well or not. And I'd tell him if anything funny happened. And I'd tell him to watch. Um, and I'd be home, if it was the train, I'd be home by noon. And if it was the plane, I'd be home by 10 or something like that. And the people who were on that show became the vertebrae, for lack of a better word, 
of all the sports writers who ever were on ESPN. I mean, that was, I don't want to say it was the AAA because it wasn't the AAA, it was the major leagues. But when ESPN, when it got it through their heads that you didn't have to have athletes on all the time or you didn't have to have <clears throat> pretty people on all the time and you could have sports writers who were a little bit more gritty but knew a little bit more and were much more comfortable with their opinions, much more because that's what they did for a living. Um, this became the cast of characters that they used. And I'll just give you a whole bunch of names. Bob Ryan was on ESPN for a million years. Mitch Album, ESPN for a million years. Right, Mike Lupica, ESPN for a million years. Bill Roden, ESPN for a million years. Um, Ralph Wiley, ESPN for a million years. Mike Wilbon was on that show. Junior Feinstein was on that show. Sally Jenkins was on that show. Christine Brennan was on that show. Jackie McMullen was on that show. Brian Burwell was on that show. I mean, all of the people that ESPN began to rely on and use as talent on television, that was where they learned how to do it. That particular show under the stewardship of Joe Valerio. Um, so I, I know we get a lot of credit. I know PTI gets a lot of credit for being, you know, an innovative sports show on ESPN. But none of these shows would have existed without sports reporters, and sports reporters would not have existed without the Chicago Sports Writers, which was the first of the shows. But when you sat there, that Sunday morning seat, for me, was, uh, that was gold, Jerry. <laughs> you know, I, I was just so thrilled to do it. Now, I stopped doing it when PTI started in 2001. I didn't do it, I don't think, Michael, more than once or twice. I mean, I had this other show, and I didn't feel the need or the desire. And, and not only that, I mean, I just thought, you know, let other people do it. Let other people do it. There's a lot of names I'm leaving out that were in, like, the next generation of people who were on that show. Um, but uh, what I'm talking about is the fossil people, the people who started it, uh, the anthracite people. You know, that got dug up out of the ground and turned into coal for everybody else. I mean, the, those of us who were on at the beginning, um, that was, the show was pioneering. I'm not saying every person on it was pioneering, but as a group, the totality of the group led to a change at ESPN and made it more hospitable and comfortable for sports writers to be on, um, for which I was always very grateful and Joe, Joe always, always did that. I mean, Joe looked for people who could write and people who could talk and made sure that they were comfortable and took them aside on their first or second visit and told them how it worked and made sure that everybody who was sort of a veteran welcomed them in. It was, uh, you know, it was baseball. You know, there was a clubhouse. It was important. Everybody had to get along, even those people who you didn't like. You had to get along with, and you did get along, and, and you respected all of their opinions and everything they've done, and it became, you know, sort of a household term, the sports reporters, and uh, so this is my tribute to Joe Valerio, and I will get out of here now. Michael Wilbon will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Smathers and Branson ad. This makes me very happy. Michael 
has talked about the belt that I'm going to receive. And, yes. And you're very excited, and you're going to get a belt, too. Yeah. So we're all very what, excited. What's so great is I can go back to belts that I've had now for a decade plus. I go back to the, the belt that Liz gave us for, or gave me for our honeymoon, the, the golf motif belt that we took to Italy. But yeah. go back to the reed. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I need new belts because I'm painfully thin. Well, you're thin, shrinking. Painfully thin. These days, there are so many reasons to celebrate and so many big holidays coming up, like Father's Day, which is, I believe, the third Sunday in June. And there's one company that is known to be a huge hit on Father's Day, and that's Smathers and Branson. In 2004, uh, Peter Smathers and Austin Branson were in college. They were best pals. They each had nice girlfriends who made them both a hand-stitched needlepoint belt as a gift. After graduating from school, they ventured to make these belts accessible to all with Smathers and Branson, a company that honors the hand-stitched tradition of needlepoint while making the designs cool enough for men to actually want to wear them. They are not your grandmother's needlepoint, as they say. They're based in Washington, D.C. They're the leaders now in the needlepoint game. The products are made with the highest quality materials from 100% hand-stitched needlepoint to vegetable tanned Italian leather. The offerings have expanded greatly, starting with the traditional needlepoint belt. They now include a huge line of accessories and home goods and golf accessories and Christmas stockings and brand new loafers. You can get... They have licensed lines for over 115 colleges and universities if you want that on a belt. They have MLB, NFL, and NHL if you want that on a belt. A nice graduation gift. Yes, they have limited edition championship collections for those leagues. They have the Rolling Stones on a belt. They have Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Formula One on a belt. You can create your own belt with the Life Belt Builder. Say that 10 times fast, the Life Belt Builder. You get to become the designer, choosing from over 1,000 motifs to create a belt that you will enjoy for years to come. I don't want to pretend that these are run-of-the-mill cheap things. They're not. They're hand-done. They're pricey. And they're worth it. They last with you for a lifetime. Yeah, but when you think about all the offerings, there are different price points. Yeah. And all of them are meaningful. Again, we start with it the just key great. fobs for every sort of milestone that we've had. You, you'll have this in your hand. And you'll think, this is a very cool thing that I've got. All about that needle point. That's why you get it, because it's a very cool thing. Uh, go online to www.smathersandbranson.com, www.s-m-a-t-h-e-r-s, and Branson, B-R-A-N-S-O-N.com. You can view their entire offering today. And if you shop today, you're going to get 15% off your entire order, plus free shipping with the code Tony K. 15% off everything from the classic needlepoint belts to their newly released loafers, golf accessories, everything in between. Smathersandbranson.com, promo code Tony K. One more time, Smathersandbranson.com, promo code Tony K. I will vouch for the quality of this, the quality, the integrity, and the beauty of these things. You're listening, You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Keith Brown has sent us a bunch of songs. We played one the other day. He's in a band in Madison, Wisconsin called Hollow Bill. And um, this is from that group. This is Ode to Ingram. I don't know who Ingram is. I don't know if it's a basketball player from Duke or just another person named Ingram. Could be Laura Ingram. I'm not sure. I don't know who this Ingram is. I don't know. But he's playing in Michael Wilbon, who's had the weekend of his life. The weekend of his life, where he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame and got to hang around. Because the Hall of Fame, the way this works is when you're in, they ask you to go back every year. And you hang around. And it seems to be a very, very, very cool event. 
How was your weekend? And give us the highlights and don't leave anything out. <laughs> well, it's always about as good as it can get. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing for the, uh, the induction. Now, you may go back and you may hang around, as you suggested. People do. I mean, the coolest thing is that people who are not being inducted, the, the, the greatest people, the greatest players, the greatest coaches, the contributors, they come back. Yeah. And they put on their jackets, which are sort of a rust color. Everybody knows the pro football jackets are yellow, um, but they are gold. But they put on the, the, the rust color jackets, and you can see them, and, um, and people are around. And look, it's, it's, a social, it's, a, it's probably the most social league anyway, the most social culture anyway. And then when you, when you have that setting with everybody back there together and, and sort of toasting um, the new induct the inductees, it's extraordinary. And you look around the room and you're looking at, you know, you always talk about how basketball is the sport that's, that's new enough, that's young enough. To, even now, I, I know you used to say this 25 years ago, but even now, the, the, the overwhelming number of people who participated are still alive. Yes, they are. I mean, so yes, you, they are. You know, you, you walk into a room and there's Bill Russell. Yeah. You know, you walk into a room and there's, I didn't see, I don't, I don't think Jerry West was there this year. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he wasn't, but this is, this is what you see. And so the, the surreal moment for me is to, you know, be called on to, to be inducted, to give a speech. And there's applause at the end of it. And there's a standing ovation at the end of it. And you look down there as a sports writer and you're looking at Magic Johnson and Julius Irving um, and you're looking at the most famous people, or, I mean, some historic people. And tell you what's surreal, too, in this case, is the guests of people, Mike Tyson. And they're standing and applauding, and you're looking at this. And, you know, that's, that's nothing we're prepared for. And even for people who are prepared for it, who are accustomed to that sort of uh, adulation, they're not ready for it. I mean, I, I saw Tim Duncan at a rehearsal. Our rehearsals were back-to-back. You go and you rehearse your speech in an empty room. And I saw Tim Duncan. He said, how are you feeling? I said, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And he said, me too. Tim Duncan, overwhelmed. I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm, complete, I'm just completely overwhelmed. And he said, it, he said it at the beginning of his speech. He said, this is the most nervous I've ever been. I know. You're at the free throw line. You're on the floor. Final seconds. You're winning a championship. This is the most nervous I've ever been. I can totally understand that. Great to hear Tim Duncan say that, and then he he gave to me what is as good. It wasn't even a speech. Um, I was told he had nothing in the teleprompter, and it was great. It was great to just hear Tim Duncan talk about his life in basketball. So I heard your speech was really good. I got two texts from Adam Mandel and from Dr. Chet Maxson saying your speech was really good. What was the essence of your speech? I don't know if there was. I, you know, I, I talked about at the beginning of it that I was uh, uh, grateful and appreciative that the Hall of Fame even sees fit to honor people who are storytellers. Um, and and, and the storytelling to me in, in, the, in the context of sport, and obviously this is basketball specific, but it's, it's never been more necessary, um, largely because of the things that uh, people are going through, and particularly in the context of basketball, um, being at the front, the forefront of, of this social justice revolution, if you will. I know that it was, I know that we think of it as starting with a football player, and perhaps it did uh, with Colin Kaepernick. But when you look at uh, the last two years, um, you are largely looking into the faces of women, 
and men uh, who, who play basketball, who played it. Uh, as a matter of fact, the league just named you know, uh, an award uh, for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, an award for it. And so this is a constant theme. It's a constant presence um, throughout the world of basketball and the people that are, that are in that room. And so, um, it, 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 you know, you're seeing the history of it flash before you. But this, but, so I talked about that and, and the people I needed to thank, and two of them, at least two of them were in the room. I, did, I had no idea. You know, Magic told me uh, at the All-Star game last year in Chicago when we were all, well, when I was told um, that I had been um, yeah. elected, he said, I'm going to be there. He said, I'm going to be there. Now, remember, there are two nights of this. So there's the night with um, the Kurt Gowdy Award winners, and those are the people that you and I are you know, intimately familiar with, some of our, our, our closest friends and colleagues over. Well, you, you and Breen time. got in. You and Mike Breen got in, and Breen Mike was Green, humbled was by a, it. Yeah, And there was a we – we all are. I mean, there's no, nobody has this reaction on their own or by themselves right. or individually. So there was a special award created, and it was great because they called them up and they sat and they did a segment – and it was a special award created for inside the NBA, right. Charles, Kenny, Shaq, and Ernie. And it was just, it was just great to watch. They called all four of them up, and instead of giving speeches, they sat with Lisa Salters, and they did what amounted to a segment with Lisa, Lisa questioning them. It was just, it was great. They were at their best, and uh, so that was the those are the people that won Kurt Gowdy awards, and so obviously Charles and Shaq. Already, they're already in. Yeah, they're in the Hall of Fame, right. And, right. So, and they're working every day. Tony, they have no days off right now. So I, I just didn't think they would be there. As a matter of fact, I talked to Charles at one point. And I said, you can't be there. You got, you, they came anyway. And, uh, and so Charles and Shaq, Kenny had something going on in his life, and so he wasn't there. But Charles and Shaq and, and Ernie were there. Um, and, of course, Breen and, and everybody has you know, family members and people who are like family who may as well be. And, the, and so that's Friday night. Um, and then Saturday night, Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. Um, and, of course, uh, the late Kobe, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, the whole thing is, so you've got two nights of this. Um, and again, you're looking around and you're seeing um, the most famous people in basketball who are living. To, to my right, about three seats away, was Bill Russell. I just think, uh, I think it's so great that Matthew was there and Don was there and Jordan was there. You know, I mean, I think yeah. that's great. Yeah. They must have, they must have gone wild. They must well, have every, gone wild. Every few seconds they come back and they say that they'd meet somebody. And, uh, you know, at, at one point I didn't see Matthew. I didn't know where he, where he was. And, uh, Russell Wilson was there. Oh. And, um, and, and so oh, listen, people from other sports are absolutely there. Larry Fitzgerald. Now Larry's a part owner now of the Phoenix Suns. And so Larry's got other reasons. But Larry was, I believe, and I didn't ask him, but I was told that Larry was a guest like Mike Tyson was of Jim Gray. So the, so are, the last you know, time I saw Larry Fitzgerald, he was standing with the great Sam Reeves at the Walker Cup at Seminole. Oh, okay. That was last week. He was on TV last week talking with Sam. Yeah. Larry's Larry gets there. around. Larry Fitzgerald yeah, 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 gets yeah. around. Larry's not... Larry's, Larry's not a guy who do just you know only works out during his off season. But there were, and I he, mean, look, Julius Irving was there, and Charlie yes. Scott was there, and yes. David Thompson was there, and and as you and on a lot of levels, I know you're going to dismiss this, but on a lot of levels, not Julius, but Charlie Scott, 
You're much more famous than Charlie Scott. You're much more doesn't recognizable matter. than Charlie Scott and David Thompson. It doesn't matter. But, doesn't matter. They're Charlie but, Scott and David Thompson. Right. I, and I understand Scott. that. These are historic figures. Charlie yes. Scott, if yes. you ask me who the most historic figures in the room are, Charlie Scott's one of them. Charlie Scott is essentially the first great black basketball player in the South in college. That's right. No, so he's, he's, he's one of them. The University of North Carolina. He's one of them, but the most historic person in the room is Bill Russell. Of course. He's it. He's number and one. So there are various times yeah. when, when Russell, and, and Russell, was, so yesterday, so there's Friday, there's Saturday, um, when you are honoring, Saturday night is, is the greatest, you know, the situation where you're honoring the greatest players in the history of the league, and of course this was, this was newsworthy, because Vanessa Bryant spoke right. at length publicly, for the first time that, that, that I'm aware of at length, at that kind of length. I mean, she spoke for 20 minutes. And you're sitting there, and there's not, you, you can't hear anything. No one stands, no one coughs. It's Vanessa Bryant, and Michael Jordan is standing beside her, it, and you're listening to her talk about her late husband. And it's, it's extraordinary to me um, that, that, first of all, that she... I knew she was going to do it, and she explained that this was what Kobe cared about. All these other things that Kobe didn't really care about. And she said he cared about this. This is what he wanted. This is what he talked to her about, that he wanted to be in the Hall of Fame. And so when she was asked if she would come and, and, and speak about her husband, she said, she said immediately, yes. And, um, and Michael Jordan stood there. You know, you have a Hall of Fame presenter. The presenter does not really present or speak. The presenter is there um, to sort of confirm, to second, you know, this, this motion that, that this person close to you was going into the Hall of Fame. And so for Vanessa Bryant to come and do this, I mean, there was, you know, this was, this was uh, you know, the biggest deal to me of the entire weekend was that. And then on Sunday, the class of, 19, of, of 2021, which would have been announced months ago, that class, because of the delays and COVID and, and, and our own induction being delayed for months, the t- class of 2021 was announced yesterday, and officially at the Hall of Fame, I announced it. Yeah, that's so cool that you got that. to do that. It was great. That's cool. It was great yeah. to announce Bill Russell, who was elected as a player in 1975, is now in as a coach. So also, that? but... This? Let me mention this for, for Washington people. So... I knew that Ben Wallace was going in. I had to know who was going in earlier than everybody else because I, I needed to You've got to write it. You've got to announce it. Yeah, right. And so Ben Wallace was there. Ben Wallace looks like he's about 25 years old. You know, Ben Wallace is now obviously in his 40s, or around 40 at least, I guess. And Ben Wallace, of all the Hall of Famers, and there are 400 or so, he is the first undrafted free agent player to is that right? ever – to go into the Hall of Fame. There were three Washington Bullets Wizards yesterday who I, I had absolutely the literal personal pleasure of welcoming to the Hall of Fame. Um, in sequence, Bobby Dandridge. Um, and I guess, I guess they're at the same time. They must have played together, well, yeah, at least a year or so. Chris Webber and, and Ben Wallace. And... Um, you know, the most emotional guy I thought of the day was Chris Webber, who it took, it took too long to get Chris Webber in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. He's been up for like eight years. And well, Bobby Dandridge, Bobby Dandridge is a veteran, veterans committee guy. He won two championships 
one in Milwaukee, one in Washington, and played in another finals in Washington. And Dandridge is just, I don't know how much you've seen him, Tony, over the recent years. He still comes to Wizards games, and he sits on the baseline in a, in a seat he's paid for, and he's Bobby F. Dandridge. Yeah, he's it's great. Yeah, he's, he's got the uh, same, you know, the same boyish, impish sort yeah. of way about him. He's the, he's, he's the most pleasant person you've, you've ever met. And you can sit and talk to Bobby Dandridge until everyone has left the arena. I know because I've done it. I'm talking so you about also, Bobby Dandridge as a patron. You, you also told me that uh, Kim Mulkey turned you around. Makes me happy to know that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes, I, 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 figured, I figured you would. Um, yeah. And so that, and of course, Michael Jordan presented her as well. You know, he, really? He, he, they, they, they became close friends at the 84 Olympics. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, she's, had an, she's had an extraordinary career. It's, it's an extraordinary yeah. career. Yeah. You know, she's, yeah, well, she's yeah, a well, national well, champion. I think three times. I'm well, three. a national champion, an Olympian. Yeah. And multiple yeah. times as a coach. Three. And, you know, she's and got there three. That you, there, there are people that, so there, there are people you want to say hello to. I wanted to, I wanted to see David Robinson. And at a dinner that, uh, that Cheryl had for me and all the people, that they, the people closest to me and us in our lives were there. You mentioned, of course. Don and Allison and Jordan and, and Matthew and yes, that's immediate family. But they're, 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 they're people that you want to see that you've known. I want to see David Robinson, who I knew would be there because he's presenting his teammate Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan, sure. And it was great. To just, I walked into this dinner sure. that, that we had for my family and, and the Spurs were having a, a, a reception for Tim Duncan. And it's it just a matter of time David before Robinson. Parker and Ginobili are going to have to get in. Parker and Ginobili have to, have to go in. And I got they to see Tony Parker, whose dad yeah, I grew up wanting to be on the south side of Chicago. So and, I'm glad you had uh, so a wonderful so time. I'm glad yeah. you had a wonderful time. Really, I'm glad yeah. with yeah. that. Yeah, it was. It was and, and I won't and even. You were David Thompson. I got to tell the story. The great David Thompson, who I know to be one of your personal favorites of all time. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, sure. So, sure. David, here, Tony, here's the other thing that, that sort of gets you these people coming up to. People coming up to me, people coming up to you as a as a recipient of this award, as, as an inductee, who are in the Hall of Fame, the greatest players of all time. David Thompson comes up and gives me a hug and says, hey, congratulations, I'm so happy I, I watch you guys. And he said, um, you know, Tony and I have the same birthday. <laughs> and I just said, how do you know that? He said, oh, no, come on, man. He goes, Tony covered us. He covered the league. Yeah. He said, Tony and I have oh. the same birthday. Make sure you tell him that I know that. And I said, your birth, he said, July 13th, man. Tony and I have the same birthday. He was so, so David Thompson, I, this pleases me no end. I was at the game where David Thompson fell and hurt his head and came back yeah, in. I told him. That was, that was the, that. Yeah, that was the final four in which they defeated UCLA in the semifinals, the Walton team in the semifinals, and then, and then went on to win the tournament. Um, if you ask me to make a list of the greatest college players of all time, not probably, I know he's college players of all time. But yeah, yeah, that he's David Thompson is one, two, or three. It's it's very simple, and the fact that people don't know him, I understand. I understand that people well, don't know him because his pro career was cut short by drugs, and and he, you know, was the spectacular nature of his career was as a younger man. Yes, but he is, as is Bill Walton. These are two of the greatest the players of all time. And that's one all of the time. people that, that came Kareem, up. Bill, we get, I get an elevator with Bill Walton, and he says, I want you to listen to me. 
I want you to listen to me. He said, I know they gave you five minutes. I want you to beat my personal record of 40 minutes. I want you to speak <laughs> as long as you want. He's, and I just, I'm laughing because it's Bill. It's Bill yeah. Walton in full voice, right? Uh, Bill Walton has just a beautiful wife who's probably about 5'3", Lori. And the, the whole weekend, Bill Walton was just walking up, talking to people, being Bill Walton. Not the Bill Walton of his younger years when he was shy and reserved. And oh, he wasn't shy done. and retiring. John wouldn't wouldn't let him talk. John wouldn't, well, wouldn't okay. let Kareem talk. But he, you know, listen, Bill Walton has made up for it for the last 50 years. No, you're right. But I mean, I, I will get to this about Kareem is the prime example of this. I was actually talking with Mike Litwin about this over the weekend. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a terrific writer. Yes, his op-ed pieces are absolutely terrific. Did I have any idea he could do this? No. I mean, did I know he was smart? Yeah. Did he ever say anything to anybody? Very, very rarely. So you don't know that 50 years out, you know, from the time he became an important person in the country as a very, very young man, he writes things where you go, wow. Yeah. Wow. And he he's writes smart. all the time now. This is not a case. Yeah. Because he, he's not terrific. A celebrity, you know, uh, uh, no. uh, step in. This is what Just Kareem terrific. does, and this, it's great that the league named this award. You know, Tony Kareem, for whatever reason, whether he was not embraced or he did not want to embrace Kareem, Kareem's voice was missing and absent from a sport, in which which needs Kareem's voice. And oh, so, I think it's a combination of both. I think yeah, he was okay. Yes, I he agree he with pushed you. everybody away, and uh, you know, and everybody uh, said, "Well, the hell with him." That's well, how it and, worked. And Kareem was probably, I guess, the most famous player who, who who wasn't there. And people can't come every year. Kareem has been, and I'm sure he'll be there in other years. But but Walton, and Walton came to everything. Bill Walton doesn't have to go. Bill Walton could just go and say, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to give a salute, you know, to, to to Kevin Garnett and to Vanessa Bryant. I mean, he could take that tact, you know, um, Tamika Catchings, who I got to 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 spend some time with. He right through the flight yesterday, which we were on together. And and you know he 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 came to to see all of it. He came to the to the Gaudi Award winners dinner. So did Tamika Catchings and her father Harvey Catchings. And and I know that Harvey you know registers with you because you covered him. Yep. Yep. And so the yep. older guys. This is why I said you would have loved it. Older guys. Alex English. Make sure you say to tell Tony Hillo. I mean guys who you know played in the seventies. I mean obviously guys played in the sixties. Guys who played in the 70s who, who were there and they come to every bit of it. Just and lovely. Bill Walton walks up and just says, congratulations. Speak as long as you want. It's only it's one time in your life. Take all the time you need. Beat my record. And it's just it's hysterical. I looked out there yesterday on the introduction of the new class. Bill Walton sitting right there standing and applauding. And, and Bill Russell wasn't supposed to come up to the stage, Tony, because at this stage, I don't know, we were trying to figure out how old Bill, uh, Bill Russell is and Sherlock. 85. Got to be 85. 88, I'd say even. Yeah, but anyway, it's got to be at least that. 85. And so Bill was sitting um, nearby and he, near the stage, and he just wanted to go up for the class picture. <laughs> all right? He's been in the Hall of Fame for 46 years. All right? But when Chris Weber and Paul Pierce and, you know, all these folks were announced, Val Ackerman, and I can't even go through all of them without a piece of paper, uh, Chris Bosch, I said Chris Weber, when they were all announced, Bill Russell said, hold on for a second, I, I want to do this. This is, and, um, and, and Bill Russell, to the stage. 
Well, you can't, you cannot emphasize this enough. It doesn't matter if you think Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time or if a generation after that thinks that LeBron James is the greatest player of all time. It doesn't matter. Bill Russell is the most important player in the history of the league. It's like Jackie yeah, Robinson is. is the most important yeah. player in the history of baseball. It, it doesn't well, matter and, that he's and, not and, Babe Ruth. It yeah. doesn't matter. And see, the cool thing doesn't is matter. that Magic and Michael, who, who are on anybody's they know that. list, and they, they know, they know it. it, and they say it, and they and people start talking. Yeah. Listen, if you say something about goat to Magic or Michael in, in person, they will stop you and say, "Yeah, it's because it's Bill Russell." Bill Russell's Just here. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, listen, I know you're running out of time, but I, I'm, I'm going to tell you part of, part of the Kim Mulkey story. And of course, you know, I was talking about you know her leaving school and leaving the school where she went all did all this winning. And so, uh, some people, a couple people told me, "Hey, you should talk to Kim Mulkey. She's a little frosted at what you said." And I on PTI. And so I went up to Kim yesterday, and by the way, by the way, her speech, she's just, you know, she's fabulous to, to listen to. Coaches are, they do this for, they, this is what they do. They, they recruit. In, they have room. to do it. And, They're and I'll recruiters. Tell John, I'll tell you later what John Calipari said to, 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 to Don and Jordan, which was just, John Calipari could be a stand-up comedian. But anyway, so I went up to Kim Mulkey, I said, listen. I, I'm virtually certain I owe you an apology, and I am going to not just do it here on our Hall of Fame weekend. I'm going to come to LSU if you will have, make some time. And she said, that's great, because I want you to do that. She goes, but the first thing you're going to do, the first thing I need, there's no apology. The first thing I need is a hug right now. <laughs> who, who, who could be frosted at somebody for a good reason says that and does that? She's what well, And we you stood know. there. She, she's, she's just, the charisma just pours out of her. Good. And, All right, get off the air. You're taking you know, too much so that, time. It was that. It was that kind of all of it, Tony. Uh, was, it I'm was glad you loved it. Congratulations. It's well deserved. Opportunity to talk about it. Appreciate. And it. I will talk later with you. Um, I'm, I'm going to be on the show today, not tomorrow or Wednesday, but I'm, yeah. I'm gonna, right, I didn't but know. You know I what? You know what? Because for a couple of reasons. One, I want to be on to hear you talk a little bit about the Hall of Fame. I'm sure we'll make some time for that. And two, I want to be on for Joe, for Valerio. I want well, to yeah, write that. that. You know, I, just, you know. I found out about yeah. that, obviously, during that weekend, and there were people yeah. there who were talking about it. And um, so including yeah. Bob Ryan, Hall of Famer, who yeah. I got to uh, see and, and talk with, and Jackie McMullen. Yeah, and they, we were he, able to just sort of have our moment of uh, collegial sadness about Joe, and uh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to make sure to plug in and listen to you today. All right, good. I'll talk to you later. Michael right, Wilbon, no. boys and girls. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Pat Forty. We'll talk about the Preakness. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the Policy Genius ad. It's May and things are blooming. Why not see if your home and auto insurance savings can bloom too? almost halfway through the year, head into June with one less thing to worry about. See if you're overpaying for home and auto insurance. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare home and auto insurance in one place. They can help you find home and auto coverage similar to what you have now, but at a lower price. They've saved shoppers up to $1,055 per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance. Their team will handle the paperwork to set up your new policy or switch you over from your current one. It's easy. Head to policygenius.com. Answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Policy Genius takes it from there. They will compare rates from America's top insurers, from Progressive to Allstate, to find your lowest quotes. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more, including bundling your home and auto policies. And if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they will switch you over for free. So head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. 
policy genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, this is the band from Madison, Wisconsin called Hollow Bill. Uh, this is a song called Indignation Jones. That's a pretty cool title. Indignation Jones. I like that. Um, this is sent to us by Keith Brown, and he's in the band. And it's lovely music, interesting music, good music. Michael, if people like Hollow Bill want to send us their music to get it played on the show, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. And if people want to buy Johnny O stuff... If this is the season for Johnny O as it gets warmer and warmer, you got to, you need to be shielded from the cicadas in Washington. You need Johnny O clothing. How do they do it? Uh, use the code TKMAY. Still not on the IL with that one. Okay. Uh, Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated joins us now. Pat is from Louisville, so he not only do we talk about swimming all the time, but horse racing is something. If you're going to work in Louisville, as Dave Kindred knows, um, if you're going to work in Louisville, you need to know about horse racing. So we talked about the Derby. And I'll ask you a couple of questions about the race itself, the Preakness, which I thought was a great race. I really love the race. Um, second, I thought, great race in a row. Were you surprised uh, by the way the, the race played out? Because I was. Yes, I was. Um, I thought it was looking for the three quarters of the race like a carbon copy of the Derby, yes. where Medina yep. Spirit got to the lead got things his way. The fractions weren't too fast. They were almost identical, actually, at the half-mile, three-quarter mile to the Derby. And uh, I thought he was going to do what he did there, which was hold on and, and repulse all challengers in the stretch and, and win, and it didn't happen. Uh, first, Midnight Berman went by him, and then Rombauer blew past everybody in the stretch. And Medina Spirit, like the rest of Bob Baffert's horses this weekend at Pimlico, had nothing to finish with. We are going to get to that. Um, I, a couple of things. First of all, on the call of the race, and I don't know who the guy is who calls the race, but if you're going to call the fractions, I think you got to tell us, is it real fast? Is it even? Is it slow? You know what I mean? I think you got to let us know because not everybody's there with a clock. Uh, and That's, secondly, yeah, yeah. you know, secondly, Medina Spirit, the lore, L-O-R-E, the lore of Medina Spirit was always that nobody's ever passed him. Nobody's ever passed him. Once he's out there, he wins. And as you say, he was passed twice. And Rombauer, by the way, if this was the Belmont, he'd have won by 12 by the time they ended that race. That horse was flying. A horse I never even heard of was flying. You had to be impressed with that. Yeah, super impressive run. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it sounded like the, the trainer was very enthusiastic about uh, pointing him to the Belmont because he, he looks like a horse who can run all day. Uh, and can finish, that's for sure. Uh, and yeah, you're right that, uh, you know, the, the, the rep on Medina Spirit was the only times he had been beaten was when somebody just got to the front faster than he did. But right. that, you know, right. when, when he had the lead, he keeps the lead and he finishes with the lead. So this was a, uh, a turnabout for sure. And, you know, it may be that he ran a huge derby and he, he was just knocked out for this race. He didn't have it. But it also, you know, leads to some speculation. Well, what was different between the derby and here? Oh, the drug test was different. Hmm. And then if you look at Baffert's other horses, Concert Tour, who was in the same race and was the third choice going off and finished ninth because he hit a wall coming into the stretch. 
And his filly, who was the favorite in the Black Eyed Susans on Friday, uh, hit a wall coming into the stretch and finished seventh. And uh, Hozier, who was his favorite in the Sir Barton Stakes the first race on Saturday, uh, was beaten in the stretch. Now, that was, that was a heck of a stretch run there. But still, he, he, Baffert went 0 for 4 with horses where he was favored in three of, the, three of those races. Let me read from one of my favorite writers, Pat Forty. Let me read a couple of sentences. That's either a brutal weekend of racing luck, which can happen, or it's something else. Baffert's horses were closely monitored and rigorously tested and then thoroughly beaten. You are banging Bob Baffert in this. And, uh, you know, and so explain that. Explain what your thought is about this. Well, I mean, it just, uh, the Bob Baffert's horses tend to be, especially for the Preakness, they're on it. I mean, his, his five derby winners who contested the Preakness two weeks later were five for five. They all won, and they all looked great doing it. And Baffert himself has said, he told me, he said, if you have the fittest horse for the derby, you're going to still have the fittest horse for the Preakness. So something happened to Medina Spirit's fitness or something. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I think, again, I, I can't say definitively that, the fact that his horses were watched like hawks and, and tested regularly and then didn't run that well is definitive proof that, that there was a doping advantage that disappeared because I don't know and because that happens sometimes in racing. Sometimes you go with a loaded barn into a weekend and, and roll snake eyes, but it at least opens up the avenue of criticism for that. You are expecting the second test to come back positive, correct? I am. Um, yeah. You know, haven't been given any good reason why it wouldn't. So we'll see. Right. You know, apparently they sent it to Pluto, though. I don't know when we're going to get the thing back. Well, I, and, and nobody, as you well know, nobody would have even known about this had Baffert not blown the whistle on himself a few days after the Derby, because this would still be underground, right? It would, it would not be known yet. Correct. Um, I, I mean, I have a hard time thinking it would have stayed underground. As a matter of fact... You know, here in Louisville, like on Saturday night, things started popping and percolating like, oh, my gosh, the Derby winner mm -hmm. tested positive. So I think that he blew the whistle on it because he knew it was coming out. But would Churchill okay. Downs have, have announced this at this point? I, I don't know. So what does this do? I mean, I don't I didn't know that Baffert was a polarizing figure, but it makes sense to me in the same Dwayne Lucas was a polarizing figure and. It's because they win all the time, and so everybody wonders how they win all the time when the people who are doing the wondering aren't winning all the time. But what does it do to Baffert's reputation? I mean, honestly, what does it do? Because they're yeah, going to they're I, gonna take the horse down. It's not going to win the Derby. It's not. Right. No, no, I don't think so. So, yeah, so to me, Tony, this is – he's about starting over, you know, in terms of rebuilding his reputation. Uh, you've had a DQ of the Kentucky Derby winner. You had a string of other uh, medication violations in, you know, within the last year plus with major horses, big-time horses. Uh, Justify won the Triple Crown 2018. If Santa Anita had handled his positive test after the Santa Anita Derby correctly, may never have run in the Triple Crown. So, but American Pharaoh, American Pharaoh went clean. American Pharaoh never tested positive for anything, to the best of my knowledge. So, right. Right. Um, you know, I mean, Baffert's body of work is incredible, but it throws it all a bit into doubt. And now, I, to me, if, if you have a, a DQ of the Derby winner, that that's a huge black mark and a black mark on the sport. And we'll see how long 
Churchill Downs suspends him for. I mean, the 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 re, if they really are mad about this, and I don't know what the you know the the scope of their sanctions could be, but if if they're really mad, you suspend him through the 2022 Derby, and say you're not coming. The Derby's bigger than you are. But we'll see if it comes to that. It probably won't. I don't think there have been suspensions that long very often. But so this leads. Your... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I just right. think well, Bob Baffert has been starting over right now. Yeah. Well, this this leads, I think, to the larger philosophical question, which is drugs are legal. All of these things that the horse tested positive for are legal to be applied to the horses, but they apparently have to be out of the system or out of the test by a certain time. And if I understand this correctly, there's no national policy. There's just local track policies and local state policies. And when horses are great and they go from state to state, they're under different auspices. It just strikes me as insane that there's no national policy. And where you are at the heart of the Kentucky Derby, this must be something that you've thought about for a long time. Oh, yeah. It's insane. It's stupid. It's insulting. It's frustrating. You know, I, this is what horse racing has done to itself and, and refuses to fix. You know, they, they, occasionally you get these spasms of, uh, you know, reformation or whatever and they say okay we're going to change the rules here we're going to do this but it's never national it's never uniform there's nobody in charge there's no uh you know commissioner there's no national governing body it is basically it's like the power five in football where you've got you know santa Anita over here and you've got baltimore over there in florida new york and kentucky and they're all going to do their own thing and they don't really care about each other and if anything they may try to screw over each other and so you just you, you have no cohesion and no clear plan for how the sport should be run from a national standpoint. How can it's like I've felt this way for years with boxing. How can there not be a national boxing czar, a national horse racing czar? I mean, that, that's what you have to have. You don't need it in professional sports where there are leagues because they police themselves in different ways. And there's only one league. And so everybody plays essentially by the same rules. But in horse racing, you don't play by the same rules. You just don't. Right. Yeah, no, and I just, I think there's been a lack of, of ability to get along and, and any even really inclination to get along. You know, I really mean, weird. I think, yeah, Churchill Downs sits here and says, well, we really don't care whether Maryland sinks or swims. And California <laughs> yeah. says, well, screw Florida. And New York says, yeah. we don't care about anybody else. And, and there you go. So we've got yeah. six different places with six different rules. It's very odd. Do you think Baffert will send a horse to the Belmont, or do you think that Baffert is going to go underground for a while? I would not be surprised if he goes underground, um, especially now looking at his three-year-olds. He's going to say Medina Spirits you know, had a, a, a vigorous, vigorous run to get to this point, not ready yeah, to go fair. on to a third race. Uh, concert tour bombed, not going on. Rest of the barn needs to rest up. We're, we're going to tuck our tail in and stay in Southern California. That would be my prediction. Do you think that he will not hold a news conference or anything like that? Do you think that he'll issue some sort of statement or maybe appear on some sort of show in order to rehabilitate? Probably eventually, but... This is where Baffert's strength is also his weakness from a interpersonal relationship standpoint. Like he is very glib, very funny, very off the cuff, charming, but he also can talk himself into idiotic statements like he did 
Sunday and Monday of last week regarding, you know, when he was on Fox News and he was on Dan Patrick and did his press conference outside his barn at Churchill. And he did, I think, more damage than good. So I think he'd have to pick his spot very carefully and then try to kind of control what he says, which he doesn't do very well. So uh, my guess is that Bob's going to keep a really low profile in Southern California for as long as he can this summer. And, you know, we'll see what I think there'll be a prepared statement from the through his lawyer whenever the Medina spirit ruling is official. And other than that, I don't think we're going to hear a whole lot from him. All right. Before I let you go, any Olympic news? Are we are we closer to the Olympics? We are. We are certainly closer to the Olympics. Uh, Olympic trials. Let's see. Stanford women's swimming will be in Austin, Texas for a meet this week, their last tune-up, and then they will go to Olympic trials in Omaha, June 13th to 20th, and we'll see where the chips fall from there. And, you know, hopefully so far there's still going to be an Olympics in Tokyo. So somebody will, will should, should be able to get to go. I hope it's you. All right, we'll talk. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> All right, thank you, Tony. Bat 40 of Sports Illustrated, boys and girls. We will take a break. We will come back with jingles and emails. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. That's the choir from Cane Bay High School in South Carolina. It's always lovely. Love to hear that. Nigel, are you still with us, or have you dropped out? <laughs> no, I am still with you, and I would like to say a special thanks to Michael Kornheiser, who actually picked up the bagels from Bethesda Bagels this morning. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you, then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. Late call to the bullpen. What listeners don't know is that was pre-recorded before the, <laughs> the, sh- the shakes set in before we get to the mailbag let me just say some people like to stay out late some folks can't hold that that long but nobody wants to go home now there's too much going on this night is going to last forever last all last all summer long and sometime before the sun comes up the radio is going to play that song that's heartbreak tonight by the eagles thanks to our guests today uh the expanded version of michael wilbon which i hope you all liked and pat 40 Thanks as well to our sponsors, Smathers and Branson, Policy Genius. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through iTunes, please leave us a review. Big thanks to Tori Clark for the recommendation for the Lost Barrel out in Middleburg. This was our first foray into the real world to celebrate uh, my sister-in-law's birthday this week. How was it? It was weird, but it was it was a great, great venue, very similar to War Dock in that you know, breweries on the high point, and then they have these tables that are going down into a, into a beautiful hillside setting. So you had a good time in I, Middleburg. I did, but I didn't. I didn't wear a mask for much of it. Yeah, okay. I know. Yeah. Yeah. From Stephanie in Des Moines, <laughs> Iowa. I've heard many littles write in about the connective tissue of the show, and I must confess, I've never felt it. I don't know anybody else who listens to my favorite orange bald man. I did not go to school with Rufus Peabody. I don't own any pair of pants with articulated knees. My water bill is always in line with the amount of water I've used. I don't like grilled cheese or mayonnaise, and I still sit around an old-school campfire getting covered in smoke like the rum-dum that I am. However, all of that changed for me recently as I sat down and finally started watching The Last Dance. Yes, I know I'm a year behind. 
Imagine my surprise when the name David Aldridge popped onto the screen in front of a man in a blue blazer. I know that man, I said. That's David Aldridge. The man to whom I'm related by marriage, wholly unimpressed by my literacy, gave me a strange look. You see, he's not a little, so he was not overcome by the warm glow one feels when finally brought into the connective tissue of the TK show. I, I however, will never forget my first David Aldridge moment. Lachiserie to you, my friend. It's great to be connected. It's just a lovely email from Stephanie. Michael Murphy in Taylor, South Carolina. In the spirit of how May the 4th is a special day for Star Wars fans, I think there are some possibilities for us littles to do something similar for your show. For example, May 11th could be known as the Old Ball Coach Day. 5 and 11, not very good, but it's not the worst day of the month. Or September 20th could be Les Boulet Day, since that day is 9-20. Also, how is your would-be or carpenter situation this spring? I'll hang up and listen. We, we brought in Orkin, actually, and they painted the fence with some sort of putty-like substance that apparently gets into the systems of the carpenter bees. And while we have a couple of carpenter bees, it is not nearly in the infestation that it was in early April. Sure, but these are the strong ones. These are the tough ones, yeah. From Quaig, Craig McQuillan in Sydney, Australia, I listen with great interest to Mike's response to your question about the greatest sporting moment he has attended. I've often thought about his exact moment from a different angle and have thought my experience with Kathy Freeman's moment would have made a fantastic column. At the time of her race, I had tickets to an Olympic basketball game in a venue maybe 400 meters from the Olympic Stadium. Canada was playing, and I was keen to see Steve Nash play. However, halfway through the second half, I, along with 70% of the attendees in the crowd, all left our seats to go into the courtyard outside to watch Kathy run on a big screen. We could hear and feel the crowd from across the road, but I can't help but think what must have been going through the mind of Nash and his Canadian teammates. Also, one of my greatest moments, even though I was not in the stadium. From Ken Sands, not related to Steve Sands, he writes, I loved hearing you and Wilbon talk approvingly of track and field, but when you said that nobody likes track and field, that's not entirely true. I grew up in Oregon at a time when Steve Prefontaine was to me like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, and hippie Jesus rolled into one. Seriously, we had nothing else. The trailblazers were brand new and terrible. He was everything. Track meets at Hayward Field were magical. I went to college there and attended the 1980 Olympic trials. Now Hayward Field is a brand new state-of-the-art track and field venue, world-class. Big, knowledgeable, enthusiastic crowds show up for college dual meets, too. Track Town USA, I miss it. But living in Northwest D.C. ain't bad. I can walk to La Cheeserie in eight minutes. Thanks. Uh, a haiku for Bob Baffert from Shad. A fine line between Hall of Fame horse trainer and banned from Churchill Downs. From Steve's, Steve Eisenberger in Columbia, Pennsylvania. I'm a behavioral psychologist. I've been listening fervently to your podcast for quite some time. Beginning in January 2021, I began to keep statistics on the first name of emailers you read on your podcast. From January through May 10th, an astonishing 21.34% have the first name of Steve. My studies have led me to the following possible explanations for the st statistical anomaly. You have an inordinate number of people by the name of Steve that listen to your podcast. You have an inordinate number of people by the name of Steve who are so full of themselves and their wit and intellect, they send an email to you hoping to have it read on the podcast. You have some sort of odd attraction to the name Steve, so you select their emails to be read on your podcast, or people with the first name of Steve are truly brilliant and their insightful opinions must be shared with others. Well, number four is clearly off the list as you will never read another email by anyone with the first name of Steve. My apologies to all Steves out there. Little Steven of the E Street Band, you may have a chance. The rest of us are shut out from this point forward. No, Steve the Sick Fan can get on anytime he wants. From Bill Masters, and this is interesting. When I was a kid, Lloyd Price lived on 16th Street near the Carter Barron Amphitheater. I've never played craps with him for obvious reasons. <laughs> so that's a Karen Bar the Carter Barron Amphitheater is where the tennis is. Yeah. 
That's where the tennis is on 16th Street in northern Washington, D.C., right before the Maryland line. I think that's really good. Really, really good. Okay. Uh, if you're out on your bike time, everyone, as always, do wear white. But we don't have the Schaputzfer to do it.
Story long after your death. 